Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Hi, welcome everyone to episode 123 of Ask MAP. My name is Courtney Lewis. I will be moderating today's Q&A session, and I am joined by Rachel Grubbs, who is our co-founder of MAP. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Happy How October. Doing? How are you doing? I'm good. It's good. almost Halloween. It's Halloween weather here in Ohio. I'm a weirdo. It's cool and rainy, and that makes me happy. So, yeah, it's all. <laughs> I think we're probably all in cool and rainy places right now, actually, because I'm in Seattle. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of us are. <laughs> and then Dr. Scott Wright is joining us as well, and he is the former director of admissions at UT Southwestern and the retired executive director of TMD SAS. Hello, Hi. hello, hello. How are you? It is, it is not rainy here. It is okay. 70 and sunny. So just so just so you know. It's a rare well, day. You've got your weather and I've got mine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect day in Austin today. Perfect day. You need a couple of those at least. Oh, we are so needful of this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, everyone, per use. Send in your questions. We are happy to answer as many as we can in the time allotted and, and get to what we can. So if you are on Facebook or YouTube, feel free to interject those questions. And if not, you're going to have to hear us rambling. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And please let us know also if you're running into any technical difficulties in submitting your questions or comments, just because last night when we were doing a present, uh, a presentation for the parents, we ran into some issues with Facebook. So we don't anticipate those happening again today, but you never know. So let us know if something is going on. Okay, so I think that we have our first question that came in. Oh. Oh, wow. Oops. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Okay. So first question, I am supposed to find out this week if I am accepted to a school that starts in January. If I'm accepted, is it okay to contact the school higher on my list that I haven't heard from with this information? So um, we can, as directors, I guess you and I, Scott, kind of talk about this one. From my standpoint, this certainly did happen. I'm not sure if other schools viewed it any differently than I did as a director. Um, it was fine to do that. It didn't change my timing or my decision usually because I had all of the seats extended. Um, but, you know, it wasn't anything that was against any rules that we had. And, you know, it was nice to hear that that we were ranked so high on somebody's list. But Dr. Wright, do you have any differing opinions there? Um, I would just say the, the first thing I would say, just to avoid any confusion with with uh, the listeners, 
uh, is that if, if a school, my, my feeling is, based on what this question says, is if a school is starting in January, that typically means it's a non-U.S. school. Uh, there are not any U.S. medical schools that start in January. Although this uh, could be a pre-PA student because there oh, are lots okay. of PA schools so, that start Okay, January. so it doesn't say. Okay. So uh, in that case, I, I didn't think about that. But it, 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 so if it's, a med if it's a medical school situation, then uh, that's you know, what it means uh, to me. But I, I agree with you, Courtney. I, I don't think it's problematic that you contact the schools. Now, I would be very judicious in what you say. Um, don't say, well, I'm starting soon. So if you want me, then you better snap me up. That would not be appropriate. So just be clear. Climia did chime in that this is a state MD school just to help us with the clarity. Okay. Of the don't, didn't know that there were any in the United States that, uh, that started in January. So it's rare. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We have more questions coming in. Okay, so one from David Green. How would you recommend I reach out to hospitals in the hope of trying to get shadowing for pre-med club members? Should I go through the school or reach out on my own? Mm -hmm. um, anybody want to take this one? I don't want to over talk, but yeah, <laughs> Rachel. I know it's really yeah. tough when you're the moderator. You're like, yeah. oh, am I talking too much? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, David, first of all, I love this question. I yeah. love that you're looking for shadowing, not just for yourself, but for all of your mm -hmm. peers. That's a very collaboration, not competition kind of question. So that just, it makes me happy that you asked. Um, shadowing is, is way harder to get than I think it should be, right? So this is an issue that um, med schools pretty universally expect some kind of medical experience. And many of them go further and say, you should have some hands-on patient care and you should have some um, shadowing. And that's certainly our philosophy. So given that it is required in quotes, how come it isn't something that's available for all pre-meds for every school? Um, you know, and, and I can't answer that question because I'm not part of academia, but part of it is difficulty. So I would say if this is something that you are trying to organize with your school, that talking to whoever the pre-med club advisor is, or if the pre-med club doesn't have a faculty advisor, talking to whoever your pre-med advisor at school is to try to help coordinate that is a good idea, just because I think it will give some weight to your request and also potentially help you set it up for the future. Um, some things to think about when you're trying to score shadowing, you know, again, whether it's for you individually or for this group is um, the big concerns are typically um, HIPAA, Right. So you one of the things you can do to facilitate this is make sure that all of the club members have HIPAA certification. I think there's lots of places to get it, but I think the easiest is through the Red Cross. Like you can just Google that. It's just a, a quick training that you take to understand the ins and outs. And then when you're when you're done with it, if you've completed it successfully, then you're going to have a piece of paper that says this person understands HIPAA and knows how to be compliant with it and has proven themselves qualified. Um, so I, I would definitely do that. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, yeah, you can reach out to hospitals, but hospitals may seem like the easiest place, but they're probably the most likely to say no. So I think you have to get really creative and consider lots of other places. So um, hospitals, but also, you know, county clinics, private clinics, um, you know, uh, you, you're going to have to, in the same way that you would if it was just you, be willing to knock on a lot of doors and hear a lot of no's before you get a yes. Mm -hmm. And good luck. 
because I love that you're doing this. Yeah. yeah, and the only thing I would add to that is that the, uh, I, I think, and I, Rachel, I can't remember if you mentioned this or not, but uh, I, I think going through your university is going to give you a lot more clout yeah. than doing it on your own. Yeah. Did you say that, Rachel? I can't remember. I, yeah, I think you worded it better than I did, but that was also a point I was trying to make. Yeah. That yeah, if you're doing it in conjunction with your school, I think that you're more yeah. likely to get yeses and also setting it up to last more than a year, yeah. right? So yeah. that it lives beyond you being at mm -hmm. your school. Right. right. Yeah. And, and one additional thing to add, if you're looking for physicians who are open to that, a lot of the times physicians are part of organizations or even if you look at the state directory for the licensing, you can find lists of physicians that you can start reaching out to. So that information is public and available and it may be easier um, if you can, you know, go through an organization of physicians or um, a council or, or things like that that are in your area that have chapters in your area or at a state level. So that could be a way if if you don't have any initial context to go off of is, is looking up that information. Yeah, the other one other thing that just occurred to me, um, I think you might have better luck, David, if you approach it not just as a shadowing program, but as a volunteer slash shadowing program. Yes. In other words, volunteering, the hospital gets something out of it. They're getting worker bees to do things that need to be done. Uh, if it's just a shadowing program, the problem with that is what's in it for the hospital. You're depending completely on their sort of moral you know, compass to say, oh, we want to, you know, we want to help the future generation. Yep. It's easier for them to say, eh, we're not doing that. So, yep. but if, if there's a value to the hospital, then that, that may encourage them to, uh, to, to, uh, to go with it. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. And I do think, un uh, unfortunately, that's also a reality for people looking for shadowing individually. Like mm -hmm. if you're trying a private practice and you just say, can I come shadow? Yeah, what's in it for them other than goodwill? And you, you hope goodwill's enough, but but if you yeah. say, hey, I'm a really good filer, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll empty your trash cans, I'll yep. do your, I'll, I'll do whatever. Yeah. filing cabinets, or you know, I'm great at Excel, I'll clean up your Excel files. Mm -hmm. Now, I just wanna say, as I'm suggesting this, I understand the extreme privilege that it requires to be able to say, there's a thing I have to do for free and in order to get it, I'm gonna need to give you more of my free time, right? Not everybody has that time. So when I'm offering that tip of like, give them some give them some incentive, I realize that there are some of you who are like, look, I'm trying to provide for my family and pay the bills and go to school. And it's not, it's not an easy thing. In my dream world, part of continuing education for doctors, right? Once you're board certified and you're maintaining your, your work, is that they have to give a certain amount of, of shadowing experiences to future generations, right? Now, again, that's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I, I don't, I'm not in control of that. I'm just saying, I feel like that's how it should be um, because everybody needs it. Um, and I also wish that all schools could coordinate that, right? I mean, there are some schools like Vanderbilt, for example, um, which definitely is, you know, a well-resourced school, but they have a very large pre-med group for the size of the school. And they have lots of, of rigorous programs that coordinate pre-meds at Vanderbilt with the local hospitals. Um, 
And I, I wish that all pre-med institu- all institutions that had pre-meds could do that. But just the reality is some of them don't have the resources to make it happen. So, so yeah, this is an important topic. Yep. Hard to get shadowing, hard to get shadowing. Kudos to you, David, for your efforts to reach out and do it and good luck. Yep. Okay. Anastasia says, hi, do medical schools view undergraduate science grades and graduate school science grades the same? Dr. Wright, would you like to tackle this one? (laughs) Yeah, I I will certainly uh, am willing to tackle this one. The first thing I would say is our mantra. It depends. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does depend on the medical school and and what that medical school values and and what what that medical school um, uh, wants to do with that. In general, I would say that the answer to that is not necessarily true. Uh, I would say that often, uh, you know, graduate, graduate school science classes are often, depending on what kind of graduate program you're in, uh, the classes are often not similar to undergraduate classes. You're in the lab a lot, so there's not, it, it's just a different kind of educational environment. Uh, so to say you have a you know, a B in, in an undergrad, upper level undergraduate class and a B in a, um, in a graduate school science classroom, th- those are not equivalent necessarily. Uh, so I, I would say um, it depends, but my feeling is that uh, there are probably quite a few schools that would not see those as equivalent and view them uh, the same. Yeah, it's... It really does vary, um, and it, it varies based on what the rest of your academic profile looks like as well, um, and what graduate program you went through, because not all are the same. I know you had a follow-up question, Anastasia. I was, I was peeking over there at the side about if there were particular um, MS or MA, there we go, yeah, um, additional science grad programs and if the type matters, they do. And you wanna pick something that is going to one, help you build a very strong foundation prior to starting med school. And two, um, if you're using it to address or correct your GPA or um, mm-hmm. you know show a trend or something like that, you're, you're gonna wanna be pretty strategic. And I would say an MA in nutrition is not gonna get you there. I don't know how many of those courses would actually fit into your science GPA. Um, I know another one that is very common is public health, doing um, uh, masters in that. And some of the courses can count towards the science GPA, but the rest will not. And so while it will show potentially a strong upward trend in your grades, it won't make that much of a difference in your actual science GPA if that's what you're worried about. And so... If that is what you want to tackle, you may want to look at either creating your own postback or doing a, a certified postback program that tackles some of those foundational science courses um, or expanding in that way. But mm-hmm. Agreed. there's there's a lot of different variations for this answer. Hopefully yep. that's helpful. Yeah, I agree. 
Okay, Camlin Cast 11. I just registered for my MCAT and I'm nervous since the only date available was April 29th for my state. Would I still be okay to apply any tips when it comes to prepping my app? So, Rachel, you are the expert in all things MCAT, so I'm going to let you take the lead on this yeah, one. Yeah, you saw me vigorously nodding. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so first of all, Camcast, it's um, October 26th, and you're already registered, so good for you, right? And even though you registered the first day or second day that registration was open, you still got an April date, right? And that happens. That is part of why we tell people to register early. Um, sometimes it's because there's limited locations and dates for your state. Sometimes it's the opposite. Like what I've seen historically is that New York and LA, which have a high density of centers, but also high density of people, they tend to book up very early too. So it seems like kind of rural areas and deeply urban areas tend to have more issue than like, like a medium sized city or a small city, um, just for, for whatever reason. Um, April 29th is still fine, right? You guys have probably heard me say lots of times that if you can be ready to take the exam in January or March, that's my preference for you because you don't get the scores back for a month. And I like cushion in case of error. So if you take it in January or March, then you get your scores back in February or April, which means when you're actually filling out your application and submitting, you already have score in hand. And I don't think you have to know your score to choose your school list because I really, it's, it's something we've talked about a lot. I don't think you have to have um, a school list based on, on stats, right? I think you should be looking at much more holistic qualitative things when you're choosing your schools. But just in case something, you know, like heaven forbid, but you know, the power goes out in the middle of your test or, or something, right? I want you to have that cushion. But April is still okay because you're gonna get the scores back in late May. And even though you'll be working on applications in May and in theory, at least with um, ACOMA schools, DO schools, you could apply in May. Most people don't actually hit send on their application until AMCAS is accepting applications, which is late May, early June. So you're still going to have scores in hand when you hit send on that submit button. And that to me is the important thing. And again, it's not about, you know, did I get a 512 or what if I only got a 507? Because either way, I would say you're applying. It's more about just making sure that you have a score that's in that kind of acceptable range, right? Is at least north of 500 because very few people apply with success with 490s or below, right? Um, so... Yes. The, the first question is, would I still be okay to apply? Emphatically, yes. <laughs> and then also, any tips when it comes to prepping my application? Write my personal statement now, for example. 100%. Um, the biggest mistake I see students make year after year is saying, well, I have a busy spring course load and I have the MCAT, so I'm just going to start my application after all that's behind me. You will regret it. Um, the personal statement is a big, heart-wrenching, soul-searching experience that you should do in little bits over several weeks, if not several months. So I typically say start your personal statement in January, just because the end of the year is a chaotic time for people, whether or not you celebrate the, the holidays at the end of the year, it's just a time of year that a lot of things tend to be happening like in our culture, right? Um, so, so I typically say start after the new year, but there's no reason you can't start now. Um, and um, what I would recommend you do is look at your spring schedule, see if you can dial it down a little bit so that you have more room in your life for MCAT prep and application prep. 
and plan to multitask, right? So when you're burnout on uncut prep, that's when you give yourself a rest day from MCAT. And you should have some days that are true rest days. But what's going to happen a lot of times is you do MCAT for three hours and then you go, okay, I can't, I can't do any more, you know, gen chem or physics or whatever. So now I'm going to go work on my personal statement. So you're still doing some work, but you're at least giving your brain a new topic to dig into. And, and that's what I recommend is you just sort of map it out, make a schedule for yourself, make the schedule realistic, right? You know, don't, don't schedule a practice test after a 12 hour shift at the hospital. <laughs> um, and, and then really try to stick to it and just do little bits all the time. Um, and I will remind you, I know I've talked for a long time, but um, for anyone who is applying, who wants to apply in 2023 to start med school in 2024, one-on-one um, -on -one advising is open now. So if anyone needs personal assistance with one-on-one -on -one advising, we're offering that. And Application Academy is open. So whether you want to do a group program or a personal program, we are currently accepting students who need help for those um, for your application. So it's not too late to sign up, reserve your space and get started. Yeah. And I just want to drive home that doing the prep now for writing your personal statement or some of your essays and getting the first second draft out of the way is going to put you in such a better place <laughs> to be able to fill out your application. Usually personal statements are a big hang up for people. And so being able to get all of your thoughts down, looking them over, having a couple of times, you know, where there's periods in between looking at it, having, you know, various people read it will be really helpful and, and probably result in a much better personal statement than if you just try to cram it at the end. Um, it's it's going to be tough and springs are usually very busy. So, okay, next question. Do international students from Africa count as URM? That's an interesting question. I don't think so, but I I'm not sure about that, but I don't think I don't think so. But I I I don't know for sure. Yeah, I go ahead, Rachel. Do you know? Rachel? <laughs> it's the telltale inhale, right? I think the answer is it depends, and I and yeah. I, I like this question. Oct, oct, oct coming. <laughs> um, uh, so as you guys may know, URM underrepresented in medicine doesn't necessarily mean. Um, uh, global majority U.S. minority, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't just mean higher melanin. Um, because, for example, here in the United States, um, we do have a pretty good representation for South Asian and East Asian um, her heritage people, but um, Hispanic First Nations and um, and Black Black folks are are the folks that tend to be less represented compared to the the percentage of doctors compared to the percentage of people in the population. So, and again, we're just being transparent, right? We don't know, it does depend because on the one hand, international students tend to have a tougher time applying simply because not all med schools accept international students. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, um, it, I mean, it's so weird, we talk about minority, you're, you're the global majority, Right, it's it's white people who are the more minority in the globe, but here in the United States, white people um, are still at least for another few years. Barely. yeah, mm -hmm. a majority, um, and um, and and yeah, we we do not have a good percentage of black physicians compared to 
to the to the um, percentage of black people in this country, right? So uh, I think the uh, black people are 12 or 13% of the United States. And um, it's only about two, two and a half percent of physicians. So we're, we're really missing that representation. So it might be something that is subjective, right? Some, some schools may say they're black, they know the black experience in America, that counts. And some, school may, some schools may say, you know, if your ancestors weren't brought here unfairly 400 years ago, that's not what we're talking about. And I do think it's a subjective decision, so. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's two separate areas. One to tackle is international student, and then the other is the, whether you are counted as URM or not. And so with OCT coming, it's, it's gonna be two kind of separate things, even though you put them together. Um, Cause I know that there are um, that applicants that would not count as URM, even though they were born in Africa and, and moved over from Africa to go to school in the US. Um, they still weren't counted because of race and ethnicity under the URM status, just because they were international. So, so separate the two. Um, the international, as Rachel said, it can cause some difficulty with getting into school depending on um, what, what status you have within the US and, and being able to complete residencies and things like that. And then URM is gonna be very specific, so. Yep. No easy answer on that one. Yeah. Okay, Alexa. So, hello. How do you cope with waiting to hear back from schools post-interview? This is a tough one. I received six interview invites and have completed five of them so far. My next one is in November. This is the hurry up and wait part. So, this is really difficult. Um, try to enjoy this time, even though that's maybe the toughest thing to hear is keep doing what you're doing, right? You know, it, getting six interviews, I would say is really favorable though. So congratulations. Yeah, that, that's awesome. That, that's a really strong showing. And so um, feel confident in that part. Obviously a lot of people were interested in your application and, and what you shared there and you've done what you can in the interview. And now, now it, it truly is just kind of a waiting game. I would say, though, if they offer any optional, um, you know, virtual events or open houses or things like that where where you can attend or engage with them or financial aid sessions or things like that, go ahead and attend those. It gives you more touches. It builds rapport. It helps you learn more about the school, too. So keep an eye out for events like that where you can engage with the school again. Um, don't over contact them, I would suggest though. So be professional in your communication. You can check in with them. I would say, I don't know, once, maybe twice a month. Another thing that you can do is see if the school follows traffic guidelines for when they release their acceptances. Because if they're on a set, timeline and those dates are out there, then you kind of know when to anticipate hearing something uh, versus somebody who does rolling admission where it may come anytime. The last thing I'll say is make sure you're checking your junk or spam 
inbox because sometimes things will end up there and heaven forbid you get an acceptance email and it ends up there. So those would be my tips. Do Rachel or Dr. Wright, do you have any additional? Yeah, I would say one thing I would say, Alexa, is I, I agree with everything that Courtney has said. Uh, one way I think in terms of coping emotionally with the the difficulties of waiting, which is 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 tough, and you know it's it's not fun, uh, is to as much as possible focus yourself and your life on others. Uh, hopefully you're still doing uh, volunteer work. Hopefully you're still engaging in, in maybe you're working or maybe you're doing, you know, classes or maybe you're doing both or whatever, but get your mind off of yourself and get it onto others. And uh, as much as you can do that, I think it helps uh, to see that, you know, that, the world does not revolve around medical school admissions. Your world is right now, but generally speaking, the world is not. And so if you can get yourself out of that box and yep. into the general world around you and, and focus yourself on the needs of others, however you do that, uh, I think that can be very helpful. Great suggestion. Okay, future doctor, that's very ambitious. Okay, yeah. is it okay to talk about changes we hope to advocate for, EMR revisions, managed care, RVUs, okay, or is criticizing the system seen as arrogance? That's gonna be subjective, would be my, my thought. Um, depending on what clinical experience you have, I would say your being seen as an expert in any one of these areas and understanding the full thing um, to speak to it may be viewed differently depending on who is screening your application. Um, I don't think it's bad to talk about advocacy, um, advocacy for improvement or changes. I think it's gonna be <clears throat> crucial that it's worded in a way that is not that's more positive than negative, right? On, on things that you would like to see or you hope to do in the future. Um, having done scribe work, cause I co-owned a scribe company, I know EMRs can be a nightmare um, and all of the different variations. So I, I understand that. There's gonna be different levels of understanding on the things like RVUs that you mention. I know my prior admissions team, they were not scribes, prior to this and they didn't work in a hospital. And so having an RVU mentioned, I don't think they would know what that is. And so remember that any of these acronyms and, and things that you want to mention, they may not, the grasp may not be there for that. So I would be thoughtful on, on what you include and, and how you abbreviate things. Um, but it, it's going to be in the tone and the wording of, of how you make these suggestions. Remember to be teachable and humble, even if you do want to advocate for things. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and I, I would definitely say too that um, you want to be careful. This is uh, tender ground that you're treading on here. Mm -hmm. uh, just as Courtney has alluded to, uh, depending on who's reading this, if a clinician is reading this, they may, it may really turn them off. 
it, it may, you know, you may think, well, you know, what the hell do you know? You, you, mm -hmm. You're a pre-med student. You don't know anything. Uh, so it depends a little bit on your background, as Courtney said. Uh, so I would, I'd just be very careful in this. And, and my assumption is when you're saying, is it okay to talk about these changes you hope to advocate for, that your, 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 your thrust is that you want to talk about these in your personal statement. Uh, if that's true, keep in mind that what your personal statement is to do is to tell your story of why you want to go to medical school. So, you, you know, I don't understand exactly how that is going to fit within the context of you telling why you want to go to medical school. If you want to go to medical school to change EMR, you know, stuff, you don't have to go to medical school. To exactly. Yeah. Uh, or to or manage care or any of the things that you mentioned in, the, in parenthetically there, you, you know, you don't have to go to medical school to do those. In fact, it'd be better to go to get an MBA yep. and, and go, you know, to, to, to uh, advocate for those things. So I, I think you have to be very thoughtful and very uh, careful in terms of how you approach these. Uh, now, in a, in a secondary uh, application, it, the same thing applies. So I, I would just be very careful with how you approach this and, and what you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, yeah, I think the big, the big thing we're missing here is, is it okay to talk about changes we hope to advocate for? Yeah, in what? If you're in an interview, and they say, what do you hope to see different in the medical care system in 10 years? Yes, mm -hmm. answer it. Mm -hmm. And and exactly like Courtney said, make sure it's yep. positive. Right. Um, okay, if they did clarify, it would be for a secondary. Um, yeah, but but again, one of the most common things I see is we ask, the, you know, the application process asks why medicine? And many, many people come back to us with essays that essentially read, why a master's in public health, why a master's in business administration, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to change the healthcare system, I mean, it's, 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 there's like a joke somewhere on the internet that's like a pre-med keeps bragging to a business major about like how hard it is to be pre-med and like, you know, how amazing their future is going to be. And the business major just sitting there scowling at them, like feeling belittled. And then flash forward to 10 years later, and that physician works for that business major now, who's now the head of the hospital, mm -hmm. right? So just keep in mind where the power is, right? Um, do you want to go into politics? Do you want to go into, into public health? Do you want to go into hospital administration? Um, those are careers that are probably going to have more systemic changes. Um, and if that's what you want, that's great. But if you write an essay that says that when the personal statement asks, why do you want to be a physician? What the admissions committee is going to hear is, I don't actually want to be a physician. I'm not a fit for med school. Yeah. So, so yeah, for the, for the personal statement, it should be a very personal story and also a very patient centered story. Um, and well, and I, I think the advice is applicable, even if you're writing this for a secondary, right? Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. still going to want to make sure that, you are still humble enough to know that you do not know everything about the system, even if you see things that, that you think can be improved and changed um, and, and potentially address how as a physician, you think that you're gonna be able to do that versus these other professions that we mentioned. Um, because if that's what the prompt is, is something that you wanna advocate for or do differently in healthcare and things like that, obviously don't fight the prompt that's what they're asking for. And I think the suggestions are applicable, but a way to elaborate would be how as a physician, that's gonna help you address these things um, yeah. because we can come up with a lot of other ways to tackle those 
um, not as a physician. So, yeah. And so the future doctor has put a couple comments in response as we're talking, and I'm, I'm not going to put them all up, right? Like we, we can't have a whole debate right now, but just like to, to understand that we respect where you're coming from. Um, th again, they responded a few times. This is just one response. Yeah, you're right. They are common reasons for burnout and those things do need to change. So we're not arguing with you about that. We're just saying, think about the perception of time and place, right? When you're applying to med school, your whole goal is to get them to connect with you on a human level and get excited about you as a future physician. So um, it just isn't necessarily the place to talk about public health and business changes, right? Um, uh, you just have to think about what the goal is. And the goal for applying to med school is to get the admissions committees to think this person is definitely gonna be a physician. They're gonna come to med school and work hard. They're gonna be successful because that's what they're looking for. They wanna know that if they accept you, that you're gonna stay and hack it. And if you spend too much time talking about all the changes you wanna make, what they may hear is, I only want to be a physician if these changes are made. And again, I'm not, I'm not arguing with you about wanting the changes. There's so much about the way we train future doctors that I think borders on immoral, right? <laughs> like the, the way we treat third and fourth year med students in certain rotations, the way we treat residents, like it's not okay. Um, you, you know, and to me, it just speaks to just generally as a group, I'm generalizing how wonderful future physicians are that they tolerate that kind of working condition to get to their dream. I'm just saying you have to think about when you're applying, what kind of message it sends that, you know, you've talked to a few physicians you've observed and you've got this opinion and your criticisms could be construed as criticizing the very people in the system now. And some of those people are the people that you're trying to convince to let you in. Right. So just walk a fine line. You know, yeah. be treating yourself. We're not telling you not to say it. We're saying be careful. Very carefully about yeah. audience perception. Yep. Yeah. It's we have such limited kind of narratives to go off of to tie to your your stats and your academics. Just be really thoughtful on on what you feel like is the most important thing for us to know about either, you know why physician, why medicine, or in these prompts, is, is this the place to really try to drive that home? Obviously, if the secondary asks for that, wholeheartedly go for it. Just be thoughtful and wording. But, um, you know, there's focus on you. And, and also, one last thing, just to wrap it up, focusing so much on, on this aspect, I'm wondering why you want to be a physician for patients um, mm. and, and not just other things. And so it, it doesn't really show a lot of empathy or, or passion for medicine for the patient's behalf. So again, just be thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good question. All right. Albert, having to take the MCAT for a fourth time due mm. to testing anxiety issues. That's you're not alone there. I am in counseling to help with the testing issues. Will schools want to know why it had to be taken four times? Um, potentially, mm -hmm. it's, it, you know, that may be a question depending on if you get an interview, if they have an open file, this may be something that you're asked about. Um, you know, if they have a question in their secondary, like what's something that can be improved uh, on your application or things like that, you can definitely address it there. Um, but 
hopefully what you see in your takes is an upward trend where your most current score is also your highest. That would probably be most favorable, I would say, if you had to take it four times. Mm -hmm. Anything else we want to add to that? I, you know, I, I don't think you necessarily have to go into explicit detail about, you know, test taking anxiety or, or anything like that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> right. directly asked. Yeah. yeah um, and, and sorry, you may have said this, but I just want to reiterate it. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, Albert, uh, this is normal. Mm -hmm. Lots of people have to take the MCAT three or four times. It's not, it's not ideal, but it does happen quite a bit. And um, I'm so proud of you that you're getting counseling to, to help with your anxiety. Um, it, you know, it, there shouldn't be stigma around that stuff, but there still mm -hmm. is, right? And anxiety right. is part of right. your brain and your brain is part of your body, right? So we have to have healthy bodies and brains to do our best in the world. So mm -hmm. I'm just really, really glad that you're not just blindly running at the MCAT a fourth time, but you're reflecting on why it hasn't gone well for you. And you're thinking about it from an academic standpoint, as well as from um, a mind body standpoint. So I just, I, I really want to applaud you for that. Yeah. Um, if you're, um, if you're ever feeling kind of bummed about how many times you had to take the test, uh, inst on Instagram, Project Diversify Medicine, I don't know if you, if, um, if people in our audience follow them, but um, uh, I, I love that, that, um, that group. And they often will just go around with a camera to, to med schools and just like randomly ask people, hey, how many times did you take the MCAT? How many times did you take the MCAT? And so many people say two, three, even sometimes four, and they're still in med school. In med school. I love that. I want to so, yeah. do like, that. You need a moral boost. Yeah. Go check out that page. It'll cheer you up. Well, and thank you also, Albert, for your vulner vulnerability with us today. Um, yeah. That you know it, that that means a lot to 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 us that you would trust us with with that, and and it also says a lot about you and your your desire to to uh, make this happen. And so, uh, kudos to you. Keep trudging along, and and uh, you know we'll, we'll 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 really be rooting for you. Yeah. Okay, Natalie, good morning. I'm volunteering as a medical interpreter. Can I count that as shadowing too? I would lean no. Dr. Wright, would you say any differently? It does count as clinical experience mm -hmm. because you're having direct patient contact, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't know if you can simultaneously yeah. count as shadowing. I, I would say you could define it as clinical uh, but not, I, I wouldn't say that it would, uh, I, I would say shadowing now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. And I think there's two parts here. So Natalie, part of it is now you can never double dip an hour, right? Mm -hmm. So you, if sometimes there are activities that you think, Hey, I could categorize this in a couple categories and any one of them could potentially be accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can't count that hour in multiple places. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, medical interpretation does count as clinical. So like in AMCAS, it would be there's like clinical work unpaid and there's clinical work paid. So if you're volunteering, it would be clinical unpaid work. Um, and that's probably how I would count it. Um, only because I typically feel like if you're working alongside a physician, then you're not shadowing them. Right. Shadowing to me is I'm not participating at all. I'm just observing. 
right? So to me, that sounds more like clinical. If for some reason, you know, maybe you have thousands of hours of clinical and you're feeling a little low on shadowing, so you want to make the case that it's shadowing, then you could only count it as shadowing. Um, so you have to pick one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to me, that that sounds like clinical, yep. which is great. It's hard to get clinical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, Peter, hi. I started my post-bac at Penn. Congratulations, it's a good program. The program consists of 36 semester credits, nine classes. I'm wondering how many total credits are good to demonstrate improvement and academic excellence to outcomes. Oh, our favorite starting phrase, it depends on <laughs> your academic record. Um, but I will say, being in a set, you know, kind of planned, heavy course load post-bac program um, from a known institution, if you do well in those, I would assume that it's favorable um, to most schools, just at being able to show that you can, or demonstrate that you can handle a heavy course load um, at that level. But it's if it's going to be enough um, is going to be dependent on the rest of your academic profile and how you do in this program and in the cumulative view of all of that um, and what you were trying to address. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wright, do you have mm -hmm. or Rachel, do you have anything else to add? No, I agree. I agree. I agree with everything you said. Okay. Yeah. And Peter, I'm pretty sure you're um, already a mapped user. Um, uh, but I just want to remind people that if you're in your free trial, so you're a new mapped user, because when you first open up your free mapped account, you're actually given the paid level, the pro level. So if you're a new mapped user in the trial, you've got access to the pro features, which includes chatting with us. And then if your free trial is expired, I mean, well, free trial. It's always free, right? But if your trial for pro is expired, you can always upgrade. It's seven dollars and fifty um, cents a month if you do the year. So it's it's eighty nine ninety nine for a year, which works out to seven fifty a month. So for less than the price of Netflix, you can have messaging with us, and we're in there every day. Um, you know, barring illness or holidays, we typically respond to everything within a business day. So you can always come on in the mapped, um, open up the chat, and say. Hey, will you take a look at my GPA and give me some trend analysis and we'll think it through with you? Um, because again, 36 hours is probably enough for a trend, but a lot of it's going to depend on what you're overcoming, right? Like there's a big difference between coming in with a 3-3 and wanting to show, hey, I just can handle rigor a little better because I had some B's and C's before versus if you're coming in with a bunch of W's, D's and F's. And I have seen people with a bunch of W's, D's and F's get into med school, but those people usually need to show more trend to prove that they're a different student today than they used to be. Um, so there's not some magic number that's, I got 30 credits of A and voila, I've proven them, right? Mm -hmm. But it just depends. Right. So just as Rachel said, it's helpful to have that information in mapped and chat with us. You can pepper us with questions. <laughs> we get peppered with questions. Um, yeah, and it's, oh, yes, we like good it. To have that, yeah, it's good to have <laughs> that, that visual. We need that information to be able to give you um, specific answers tailored to you in your situation um, from, from our past experience. Okay. Shazia. Our... Are most DO school applicants through AAMC? 
None are actually. <laughs> so DO schools will be run through what's called a COMIS, which is essentially the equivalent of what the double AMC provides for their master application. So A-A-C-O-M-A-S for a COMIS, that is going to be the application to DO schools. And I believe some are through the Texas yes. application service as well, if yes. it is a DO school within Texas, but maybe not all of the DO schools. There's, there's one uh, one DO school in Texas does not, that's the current okay. University of Incarnate Word okay. uh, in San Antonio, uh, does, uh, uses ACOMAS, uh, but the other two DO schools in the state use uh, TMDSAS. Yeah, so if you are a Texas resident or, or very hopeful to be a Texas resident um, and you're looking to apply DO there, a majority of them will be through the separate Texas application system. Um, mm -hmm. And then the rest of the DO applications will be through ACOMAS. None will be through AMCAS or AAMC, the MD service. Yep. And I threw up a quick banner because I know that all those um, Acronyms, acronyms and initialisms. Acronyms. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess some of them are acronyms and some of them are initialisms, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's confusing. Um, but so, and also again, in mapped and, and mapped is free. You don't have to have pro for this. We've got a whole big resources section where we describe a bunch of that stuff and link through. So if you're, if you're feeling like I just kind of need a glossary, there's a lot of that mm -hmm. information is available um, and mapped. And also if Dr. Gray were here, he would remind you that it's also in the guide to the medical school applications process book, um, which I looked the other day and that book was only $2.99 on Kindle. I don't know if that's true today because sometimes Amazon just ran up, like we're not in charge of our Amazon prices. Um, but, uh, but I was looking at the book the other day and it's normally like $14 for a physical book and like $8 for the Kindle. And for whatever reason, the Kindle was like way on sale. Nice. So it's, Good time to check out that the pre-med playbook. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay. We've got probably about 10 minutes left. We'll see if we have any more questions coming in. Okay, Dave, Osby. I am a PA. I work at a private hospital. Across the street is another hospital that does have a medical school. Will it help my admissions chances to that school if I went and worked at that hospital? I, well, <laughs> let me say, okay. Uh, let, let me just say, um, my general uh, advice to students is don't do anything for the sole reason of you think that's going to help you get into that medical school. Just do what is right for you, for your circumstances, and don't try to game the system in some way that's going to make you look better. You know, if you like the hospital you're working at and you enjoy the coworkers and, and all that, then stay at that hospital. Just because you move across the street and you're working at the hospital affiliated, that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, so I, I, I would say be careful about getting in that bind of, of trying to do things because you want to make yourself look better. Do it yeah. for other reasons. Yeah. And I mean, if if you can get strong letters of recommendation from the mm -hmm. physicians that you work with at your, your current hospital, mm -hmm. that's going to be a lot more favorable 
then jumping ship for a short amount of time, trying to build that same rapport um, for people that are 99.9% probably not going to be in any type of decision-making capacity. Um, So it's, I would lean towards no. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. What I would just chime in is like, anytime you guys are thinking about networking, keep in mind that if you don't know the personal connection, if you can't map out the degrees of separation, it's probably not gonna make a difference, right? So like, if you're lucky enough to have a supervisor at the hospital who is next door neighbors and really great friends with one of the persons on the admissions committee, No, that doesn't give you an automatic in, but also if they read a letter of rec from that supervisor, they might be like, oh yeah, I know this guy and he really can recognize a good future student. Mm -hmm. But if you can't see that kind of connection, you know, people will say like, I want to go to OSU and med, should I work at one of the OSU hospitals? Like, you know how big that place is? Like, they don't all know each other. They're just going to work. (laughs) Um, So just kind of think through that gaming it like that. the legacy is not that strong, right? In the same way that like in college admissions, people will say, well, if my dad or my mom went there, if if a parent went there, is that going to help me get in? No, that's not what legacy is. Legacy is my name is on a building, (laughs) right? Um, And that's college admissions, right? Not med, but like the connection has to be stronger than you think. So I would just say work wherever you want to work, but also just, yeah, there's not much point in gaming because you just never know what the rules of the game are. Yeah, I, I could go off on a on a big long soapbox tangent there, but I won't. Um, it's if the medical admissions office is handling things correctly, there should not be any bias in in that respect, and everybody is put through the same screening process. And yeah. if that's an affiliated hospital right across the street. They're likely going to know about the hospital that you work for too um, and know that it's close by. So um, I think longevity, good performance, good relations and rapport is going to get you a lot more than, I agree. Um, yep. than jumping ship. Yep. Yep. Agree yep. Completely. Okay. Daniel Bryan. Hi, I am a third year, but it's my last year. I just registered to take MCAT in April, would it look bad to not take courses in the spring, delay graduating by a year and just study for the MCAT? Um, from the blurb of information this provides, probably not. Um, Rachel, do you wanna? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I like that you're thinking about how can I make time in my life to take the MCAT. And if you're lucky Mm -hmm. enough that you can have several months where you can only do the MCAT or make the MCAT your main thing, I think just for the sake of your MCAT score, that's great. Um, uh, It doesn't sound like, I mean, I I don't think that people, and again, you guys are the directors of admissions, but I don't think people see a red flag of taking a semester off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if you've got an answer prepared, which is, Mm -hmm you know what, I was lucky enough, I had enough credit that I could finish school in um, in six semesters instead of eight, and I decided to take a break semester to focus on the MCAT. You know, if, if, you, if the courses you have remaining are ones you need to matriculate to med school, but you don't need them to take the MCAT to, or to apply to med school, then I think mm-hmm. you're in a privileged position, and in my opinion, it's okay to, to use it. Yeah. Um, 
And, and it makes sense from a timing standpoint because you really can't delay the MCAT past April, but you can be taking courses while you're mm -hmm. applying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that my my only caution would have been, yeah, making sure that you have the courses that you're going to need for the material on the MCAT already under your belt and not trying to just smash the MCAT in their self-study on, on kind of foundational courses that you're going to now be taking into the future just to, to meet the time limit. Um, so if the courses are done, you have that information and you're ready to go, then yes, this seems viable. Yeah, I agree. Okay. <clears throat> Got time right. for one more, you think? Yeah, last, last couple here. Okay, Tiffany, hello. I was told that a high stat applicant, I would get filtered out at DO schools because they think I'm using them as a backup for MD. Is that true? No, <laughs> no. So um, I'm not quite sure where that narrative would come from, um, but DO schools are are competitive as well. I know the one that I worked at, I would get 6,000 applications every year. And I had competitive students going there all the time and they just chose to go DO route. And mm -hmm. they're in the same residencies as the MD students at the end. So. Mm -hmm. I think maybe that was, I mean, you, you certainly know a lot better than I do, uh, Courtney, but I, I think maybe you know, maybe 20 years ago, that may have been true, but anymore, I, I, I don't see that as true. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you should know, if, if you are going the DO route, you should know why you wanna go DO, and it's not because you're against MDs or they only see them, you know, patients as symptoms and things like that. That's inaccurate, and it's not something that we want to hear, you know, how are you going to use or why do you want to learn the additional 200 hours of osteopathic manipulative medicine? Um, the rest of it is going to be highly similar, um, maybe just different in some presentation, uh, but to be able to pass boards and match into the same residencies, the competencies have to be the same. Yep. And so we're also looking for academically sound students. Um, and I had plenty of high stat students match into my school. So no, you're not going to get filtered out. And we understand that students may be applying to multiple DO schools, right? The average is nine. If you're applying to MD schools, I think it's even higher, um, like 15 or so. And so we understand that the best approach is for you to select the schools that you feel like you would be successful uh, with and, and apply to all of those and, and see what you get. So it's not uncommon to do that. We kind of expect it and it doesn't matter if it's MD and DO, so. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'll just chime in because I have some college admissions background. I think this idea that you didn't use this word, Tiffany, but the phrase is often called yield protection. Um, that doesn't really happen in med schools. It is um, assumed or alleged to happen in college admissions, but there's something like 4,000 plus colleges in the United States and there are 
maybe 20 that people believe might use yield prediction. So it's one of those things that is pretty rare and yet gets a lot of flap. Um, and I think as often happens, people confuse stats for story, right? Mm -hmm. So I have known students who I knew didn't really wanna go to DO schools and who considered them backup choices. And some of those students got their DO rejections before they got MD acceptances. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think that wasn't about their stats. It was about how those essays read, right? Yeah. Um, it, uh, admissions people and, you know, Courtney and, and Scott, you can chime in here, but they are reading, right? What did, Courtney, you just said 6,000 applicants in a yeah. year um, yeah. for a school in, um, an osteopathic school in um, in New Mexico, you know, yeah. near, near the Mexico border. Um, yeah. So it's not like it's a big city in LA or New York or something, right? Um, so yeah, you're gonna have tons and tons of people with amazing stats who also have amazing essays. Yep. Um, so I, I just think, sometimes I think, and Tiffany, I'm not accusing you of this, I'm just telling you where I think that rumor comes from, is sometimes I think people will blame qualitative substantive like sort of personal character issues on stats because stats are easier to point to um, but that doesn't and, and another reason why this this may come into play um, thinking about it is is maybe just the timeline in which you are designating do schools if it is really late in the cycle then we kind of know um, that if it's you know if I'm getting something in February, March, and you're a high stat student, I'm wondering why I'm just getting your application. So, I mean, we know we know the timelines of the other applications. I know when Texas drops their acceptances, you know, being a state very close. I know when MD traffic guidelines are. I know when my fellow osteopathic schools deadlines were. And so um, we track that and we kind of know, but is it going to be a reason to filter out? As Rachel said, it's probably much more to do with the narrative right. than, um, than the actual stats. But I mean, we know, especially if it's later on, what's going on. And that's not necessarily a, a ruling out um, issue. Sometimes people only designate like three schools at the beginning and then they go, oh, no, I need I need to branch out and kind of salvage the cycle and, and kind of open my options. And that's totally fine. So. Cool. All right. I think we're at time. Yeah, yes. we're, at, we're done. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of people on. So thank you right. for joining. Yeah. Thanks, us. everybody. It's good to see you today. It's good to have this information also to inform us on what's going on, what questions are popping up, what mm -hmm. we need to look at and stay involved in. And so thank you for providing us with information as well. Yeah. Thank you to Rachel and Dr. Wright for joining me. And we will see you again next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.